Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He's taking a different approach than the other candidates. From his freedom dividend to free financial counseling for all, his ideas could spark some actual change. I really loved sitting down with him, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing his perspective. I'm Andrew Yang, and I'm running for president on a platform to give every American $1,000 a month. And I'm sorry, not sorry. Andrew Yang went from this. He's a long shot candidate from New York. His profile is actually pretty low. To this. The 10 candidates who made the cut include nine politicians and Andrew Yang. So how did a tech founder who has never run for anything manage to make it this far? Well, it starts with $1,000 a month. Within seconds of taking the stage in MacArthur Park Monday night, it became clear that 44-year-old businessman Andrew Yang isn't like any other Democratic candidate in the 2020 race. And that's something his supporters say will help him beat Trump. He knows his attacks work on politicians, and his fear was that a new non-politician that is not full of comes out of nowhere. I am the ideal candidate for that job because the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. Wow. I'm so excited for you to be here. Wow. I'm excited They're going to be here wild too. for you over Gosh. there. That group over there is. And over here too. Get these guys right here. Thank you. So we have clearly heard a lot from the candidates in the last few months, and, and they are for sure talking about important issues. You know, things like uh, gun violence and immigration and healthcare. And they all may differ slightly in slightly on how to get there. But it feels like there are very few that are taking um, creative, bold approaches to the problems that we're facing in this country. And to me, you're the only one that's thinking creatively and outside of the box, the politics is, as usual. Well, thank you, Alyssa. You're welcome. Um, and I think I really do think that that is why your message is resonating throughout the country. So I want to understand a little bit better on how you became a creative thinker. So if you could just walk me through your childhood a little bit and your upbringing. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. My, my parents met as immigrant students at UC Berkeley in the 60s. I was born in upstate New York in a town called Schenectady mm-hmm. uh, where my dad worked for GE. 
and I was a very nerdy kid. I read a lot of science fiction uh, and fantasy novels. So there was a high degree of creativity in that. I played a game called Dungeons and Dragons with my brother. With some <laughs> my kids brother down. played that. Too. Oh, really? Yes. I'd probably get along with your brother. <laughs> so we, we had an active imagination uh, throughout our childhood, for sure. And uh, throughout, I think, high school and college, I probably got away from that to a high degree. I studied economics and uh, political science at Brown. And then I went to this very uptight New England prep school called Exeter in state in New Hampshire, which ends up being actually kind of uh, positive if you run for president, it turns out. <laughs> so then you go back to, to New Hampshire an awful lot, and then it feels like a homecoming. And then I went to law school after graduating from Brown. And I'd say law school is filled with people who at some point might have had a creative impulse and then decided to shelve it. <laughs> I suppose I think there were a lot of people in law school that thought, I'm going to be a writer at some point, and then, uh, and then decided that uh, wasn't in the cards. It's funny because I had a lot of people in my improv class, my acting improv class, that were lawyers that actually would study improv to be trial lawyers. Yeah, that's probably the best sort of training for And them. they were great. They were great. Definitely creative thinkers at some point, right? Yeah, and so for me, Melissa, what's funny is that I, I became much more creative after five miserable months practicing law <laughs> where I just thought it was like the worst job in the world. I called that law firm, and it's a, a fine firm. I, I still have friends there, but I called the law firm a temple to the squandering of human potential. <laughs> what, what was it that you didn't like? Well, so number one, the job generally requires you to think very negatively. You have to think about what could go right. wrong with a deal or relationship and then try and contract against it, which is not a very pleasant frame of mind to have. But the work itself was serving as a transaction cost. And what I mean by that is that if big company A buys big company B, then you need someone to look over the paperwork with a fine-tooth comb, and that was my job. Mm -hmm. And so it, it felt like you were just a spot of grease on a wheel, like a giant company wanted to do something, and then you just spent hours and hours preparing the paperwork, which is exactly what the job was. So, I mean, that's why it felt that way. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, It was right to feel that way. Yeah, and, and uh, so after... Five months. Well, I, I thought a couple things. I thought, number one, I do not want to do this job forever. And number two, it's going to get harder, not easier to leave. Um, because you actually felt yourself adapting to the job. And that's true of all of us, I think. Like it's you, certainly true in politics. Oh, yeah. I, that this is, in, in some ways, the theme of my campaign is that I can see how people become institutionalized in various ways. I think D.C. is a very institutional town. For sure. Uh, and it's, in some ways, not anyone's fault it's that we've set up this giant set of incentives that turn people into certain kinds of instruments. And my law firm was an example of that, where you pay people hundreds of thousands of dollars to become really detail-oriented contract editors, and you come back 10 years later, and guess what? <laughs> you, you, right. have, you have lots of really detail-oriented right. contract <laughs> editors who you know think it's awesome, or if they don't think it's awesome, they've at least uh, adapted. Do you have kids? Yeah, I have two young boys. Uh, there are six and four. Okay, so our kids are similar in age. Oh, I wow. have an eight, an eight-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, and I bring up this this creative thinking because it's something that's actually been on my mind. I went to back to school night, and I noticed that they're doing this thing now in kindergarten through elementary school, where even the art is taught in a very 
structured way. Whereas they'll be, you know, let's make a house. It is a triangle and a square. The triangle will be blue. No. That's the roof. I yes. Don't, I don't and like so the there's <laughs> this is a true story. And so you look at the wall and everyone's got I mean the triangle's all different in size, but there's a blue roof and a and red walls. No. And yes. And it lacks any sort of creative expression or thinking outside of the box. And I said something. I was like, how how come there and this is a new protocol in no. which I'm telling you. Well, I mean, I believe you. Uh, my, my kids. So my older son is on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. and he's a special needs school. Now, what I say is, uh, atypical is the new normal, so, right. so to speak. Uh, well, I can definitely see how our educational system is not exactly enhancing creativity. Uh, and one of the things I'm arguing in my campaign is that we overemphasize standardized tests, in particular, in our educational yes. system. And it's changing the way teachers teach. That you, if you're a teacher and you say, "All right, I guess I'm going to be evaluated based upon how my students do in these tests," I guess I'm just going to try and uh, teach them. And the tragedy is that being good at those tests is going to become less and less central in an economy where a lot of the high order, repetitive technical work is going to be done by technology right. and and machines. Uh, and so we're stifling creativity at the worst possible time. And also, what does that do as far as problem solving? Yeah. Uh, innovation? Yeah. What are we creating? What are we creating? I mean, our, our educational system is built to send people into an industrial era assembly line type of economy that doesn't really exist and hasn't existed for years. And I would think, at, at a minimum, I mean, you live in L.A., I would think that your schools would be all, all over this, would be all, on top of <laughs> trying to turn your kids into uh, the creators of the future. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised they're not. Well, have you, do you know where we rank in the educational system in the country? You mean Los Angeles? California. Or California? I mean, I, I have friends here, and, you know, I, I know that um, some of them have made very specific school choices. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you basically have to send your child to a to a private school. Which is not how it should be. I it's think it's not. I went to public school. Yeah, me, and me too for ten years. Yeah. It was the greatest thing ever. As a parent, I think our default desire is to send our kids to public school. And then when you realize that the public school that you're zoned for might not be a good fit for your kid, then you start looking at other options. But I think most parents start out thinking, I want my kid to go to public school. Let me be clear, I am pro-good school. I've got a kid, uh, one of my uh, little boys just started public school last week, and I was not there because I was running for president. (laughs) So we need to pay teachers more because the data clearly shows that a good teacher is worth his or her weight in gold. We need to lighten up the emphasis on standardized tests which do not measure anything fundamental about our character or human worth. But here's the big one. The data clearly shows that 65 to 70% of our students' outcomes are determined outside of the school. We're talking about time spent at home with the parents, words read to them when they're young, stress levels in the house, income, type of neighborhood. We're putting money into schools, and educators know this. We're saying you're 100% responsible for educating our kids, but you can only control 30%. They all know this. The answer is to put money directly into the families and neighborhoods to give our kids a chance to learn and our teachers a chance to teach. Well, I think this brings me to something that I wanted to talk 
to you about because it's the thing that keeps me up at night, which is the poverty level in our country and the income inequality. And I think it's a good segue because when you're talking about public schools, we're so blessed to have the privilege of of sending our children to an alternative. And a lot of parents don't have that option. And I'm having a really hard time seeing the future of how we get out of this this place that we're in now, where eight out of 10 families live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That's one, one flat tire away from total devastation. And people's lives are ruined from All financial ruin. Yeah, completely. I mean, and people can't come back from that. So if we're not giving the opportunity for children to get out, to get the education, to go out and be successful in their life, I can't, this is just a perpetual cycle that will never end. So I, I want you to talk about how you're going to fix that. Oh, thank you, Alyssa. That, that, I mean, that's my uh, <laughs> I mean, intent, I don't know that for, for sure. sure, but I know that's what you're running on. So I want to hear oh, all we, about it. We can fix it and in part because of um, recognition that of the depth of the problem that you just described. Because right now the myth is that we're a meritocracy. If you're smart and you work hard, regardless of your circumstances, you can make it. And then the numbers show that's generally incorrect. It's a lie in that if you look at the elite schools in the U.S., uh, your like five, ten times more likely to go to one of those schools if you're from the top quintile than if you're in from the bottom quintile. And that right now we're essentially perpetuating opportunity and privilege and access among the same group of people. And then you have a sprinkling of exceptions to make it seem like there's something going on. But the numbers show that, that there's really not much going on, that we're much less uh, equal in terms of socioeconomic mobility uh, than other countries, other developed countries. We're the most unequal country by many measurements in the history of the world right now. And unfortunately, the dynamics of the economy are making those inequities more entrenched, not less. And one of the things that you know my campaign's talking about is that technology right now is getting layered over this winner-take-all version of capitalism, and it's going to create greater extremity than we've seen in the history of the world. I really want you to break that down. Let's unpack that for a second. I want you to talk about the changing equality. And most importantly, can you pinpoint how and why we didn't prepare the people of this country better for the changing economy? Because there are forgotten cities, as you know, throughout this entire country where I don't know how they're going to come back. There's plenty of opportunity and it's really going to take a lot, not only from a local and a state level, but also a federal and also a private investor level to get these communities back up and running. How did we not plan better for this moment? It's because the incentives in D.C. in particular are broken. I mean, the, the fact is, if D.C. does a bad job for 5, 10, 20 years in a row, no one loses their job. Nothing actually happens. Uh, they figured this out decades ago. And the feedback mechanism is now broken to the point where tens of millions of Americans thought that taking a bet on a narcissist reality TV star was actually the right move. Washington, D.C. right now is the richest metro area in the country. I mean, just think about that for a sec. Like, how the heck did that happen? Like, what do they produce? Uh, what they produce is access to the spigots of federal money. Uh, and if you go there, you, you see that their incentives to serve the people of this country are vanishingly low. 
So when you talk about it's like how do we not prepare uh, our education system or our people for all these changes, just no one in D.C. has any accountability. Or could creatively see it coming, maybe? Oh, they can't see it coming either. I mean, you go there and, uh, you know, I, I went there and said, hey, what are we going to do to help people understand the fourth industrial revolution that is wreaking havoc now on communities around the country? And someone in D.C. said to me flat out, he said, Andrew, no one's going to do anything about it here in D.C. And he said, this is not a town of leaders. This is a town of followers. What year was this? This was 2017. This was right after Trump won. I went to D.C. and I said, hey, what are we going to do? And then he said, no, one's gonna, no one here is going to do anything. <sighs> yeah, this why I'm running is that I realized that the feedback mechanism, mechanism does not work. D.C. is not up for these challenges. They either don't understand or don't care or some combination. And so we're going to have to do it ourselves. It requires a popular revolution. It requires us to get control of the government, and then rewrite the rules of the economy so that it actually works for the 80% of the families that are living paycheck to paycheck. But here's the magic, Alyssa, and this is the thing that... You know I love magic. Well, here's the thing that energizes this campaign is that there's nothing preventing the majority of citizens of a democracy from rewriting the rules of our capital flows to improve our own lives. We can do it very, very quickly. Uh, if I were to to be here and say... You know, we're going to fix our energy infrastructure. We're going to fix, to be honest, our educational institutions. A lot of it is blowing smoke because when you get to the ground, it's very, very difficult to change multi-thousand person bureaucracies or an energy infrastructure that required hundreds of billions of dollars in investment has been in, in the ground for decades. We should try, We need to make progress on these things and we should do it. But the reality is changing those things is going to take a lot of time and a lot of struggle but changing our capital flows can actually happen overnight. If enough of us get together and say, hey, guess what? The majority of us have decided that every American adult should get $1,000 a month, free and clear, do whatever you want. Then it's law the next day. And we can actually rewrite those capital flows to make ourselves and our people stronger, healthier, mentally healthier, less stressed out. And you talk about our educational systems, two-thirds of our kids' academic performance, and you know this as a parent, Two-thirds of our kids' academic performance is a result of what happens not in the school, but happens at home. Yeah. And so that's words read to the child, parental time, income levels. Where they're going to get their next meal. Nutrition. Nutrition. And so right now, one of the problems we have is that we're asking our educators and our schools to do the impossible. We're saying educate our kids, but we all know that you can only control a third of the out outcome. Right. And the educators know this, too. If you go to a teacher and say, hey, <laughs> like, why is it this stuff working? They'll look at you and say, like, to be honest, the kid goes home and we can't control what goes on in the home. They go home for the summer and some of them spend the entire summer playing video games. They come back and then, you're, you know, you have to work miracles. Uh, so if we want to give our kids a real chance to learn, what would we do? We would relieve extreme poverty. We would put more money into the families and neighborhoods. We would enable parents to have a greater chance to perhaps have one parent spend time with the children mm. so that they could read to them and support them and do the things that would help with their development. Uh, we would make it so that the kids grow up in an environment where if they uh, are conscientious and diligent, good things happen. Because a lot of them right now, it's like you're conscientious and diligent, nothing good happens. So, you know, then what kind of, what kind of lessons are you getting? Right. Um, and this requires a different approach to not our schools, though we need to reform our schools. We do need to do that. But we need to 
uh, infuse resources into the homes and families themselves to actually get to the root of many of these problems. As many of my listeners know, finding a bra that fits is a pretty difficult task. And going to a store to try on different styles can be time-consuming and so frustrating. But... I recently discovered Third Love Bras, and they are great. I've tried a few different ones, and not only are they cute, but they are so comfortable that you don't even need to think about it. Third Love has a Fit Finder quiz, which takes under 60 seconds and uses data points generated by millions of women to help you find your perfect fit. Over 14 million women have taken this quiz to date. They offer more than 80 sizes including their signature half-cup sizes, and there is a 100% fit guarantee. If you order from them, you have 60 days to wear the bra, wash it, put it to the test, and if you don't love it, you can return it, and when you do that, they'll donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash sorry now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sorry for 15% off today. I want to tell you about Lola, okay? A female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They now offer sex products, too. The company was started because its founders believe that women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. Unlike other major brands, Lola products are 100% natural and easy to feel good about. Plus, the products come in a simple, customizable subscription. Sex by Lola is their line of gynecologist-approved sexual health and wellness products designed first and foremost for women. And it's also available via subscription. Condoms have been aggressively marketed towards men, but Lola believes women come first and that you should be empowered to make decisions about your sex life. Their condoms are made of natural rubber latex and individually tested for contraception and STI protection. I love Lola because they deliver what I need right to my door in a well-designed, discreet box. Now, they are giving my listeners 30% off your first month's subscription. Just visit mylola.com and enter Alyssa30 when you subscribe. That's A-L-Y-S-S-A-3-0. So you mentioned giving $1,000 a month. For people that don't know about the Freedom Dividend, will you give us a brief explanation? I'd love to. (laughs) So I know for many people, my campaign's the first they'd heard of this idea of every American getting a certain amount of money, in my case, $1,000 a month, no questions asked. But this is not an Andrew Yang idea at all. Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country, called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King fought for it in the 60s, called it the guaranteed minimum income. And it is what he was fighting for when he was assassinated in 1968. A thousand economists endorsed it in the 60s. It passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971. And one state, Alaska, now has a dividend where everyone in that state gets between one and $2,000 a year. No questions asked. And they fund it with oil money. And what I'm saying to the American people is that technology is the oil of the 21st century, where our yeah. data 
our information is now worth more than oil. And no one listening to this remembers getting their data check in the mail. Uh, and I'll tell you where the data check went. It went to Facebook, Amazon, Google. Like those are the companies that are now profiting to the tune of tens of billions of dollars off of our information. Our information being what we search for, what we buy on the internet, potentially what we say in a room, all of that data collected, for those that don't know, collected and then sold to companies to yep. make more revenue, basically. Yep, so they're taking resold. our information, selling it for their own profit. We get nothing. Yeah. Yeah. We get sucked dry. And Amazon, a trillion dollar tech company, last year paid literally zero in taxes. So what would you do for like a company like Amazon? What, what, what do you do? What you do is you do what every other developed country has done. They figured out that you can't let a trillion dollar company pay zero in taxes. And uh, Amazon isn't breaking any rules in the sense that you have a corporate income tax regime where you say, look, we're going to tax profits. And then they just make sure they don't have any taxable profits. (laughs) And so what other developed countries have figured out is how about we take a toll when value changes hands, regardless of your profitability. And then this ends up tying the tax base more to the people that are benefiting the most Mm -hmm. in our society. So my plan would give us a tiny slice of every data transaction, every Google search, every Amazon sale, every Facebook ad generates hundreds of billions of dollars and then puts it back into our hands where it makes us stronger and healthier. And the big guys don't get hurt by this that much because some of the money ends up floating back up to them anyway after we get it. Right. Because you're putting it back into the economy, I would think. Yeah, as you said, if 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, what are we going to do with a thousand bucks a month? We're probably going to spend it. (laughs) (laughs) What percentage of people in poverty would that lift out of poverty? Do you know? It would uh, would lift the vast majority of them out of poverty um, almost immediately because the poverty line in the U.S. right now is $12,770 a year. So if you're getting 12000 I know that's a crazy low number, but if you get $12,000 a year into the hands of every American adult, that uh, alleviates the vast majority of poverty immediately. Donald Trump is our president today because we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and he campaigned saying we're going to bring them back. And I'm saying instead we're going to share the bounty from all these new innovations with the people in Youngstown in the form of a dividend of $1,000 a month. Because if you think we're going to revive manufacturing, the reality is if you go to a car plant, uh, it's a bunch of machines. It's not a bunch of humans. And that's not going to change. It's not going to reverse itself. So we need to own the reality of the 21st century and start distributing the bounty more quickly and broadly. If enough Americans come together, raise our hands and say, yes, we want universal basic income, then we can make it happen in 2021 and it will be the first thing I do as president. Universal basic income is a policy where every citizen gets a certain amount of money every month, regardless of their work status or anything else going on in their lives. Under my plan, every American adult between 18 and 64 will receive $1,000 a month, free and clear, no questions asked, doesn't matter if you're working, not what your income is, $1,000 per adult per month. So what are those solutions? You all remember the first time you heard about me in the campaign, how there's an Asian man running for president who wants to give everyone $1,000 a month. Do you remember that Los Angeles? I want you to reflect on the first time you heard that. Nothing like the first time, right, LA? Where the first time you heard it, you were like, ha ha, that's a gimmick, that'll never happen. But if you dig into it, you will find this is not an Andrew Yang idea. This is a Thomas Paine idea. This is a Martin Luther King idea. 
This is an Elon Musk idea. And soon, this is going to be the idea of the American people that takes us all the way to the White House in 2021. So how could anybody be not for this? What are your critics saying about this? idea, this freedom dividend idea. Well, that's the fun part of this is that more and more Americans are waking up to it where people just say, it's like, what, we can do this? A lot of it, a lot of the resistance, and this is where it gets kind of deep and human. Um, A neuroscientist in Seattle said to me that the enemy of this idea is the human mind. And what they meant by this is that we're programmed for resource scarcity. It's baked into our brains that if uh, I spend uh, something now that I don't have it later, that if uh, you get it, maybe it's bad for me. Like this is the mindset of scarcity Mm. that most Americans right now are very much um, saddled with because if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then you start making money time trade-offs all the time and you have your head down. And so if I say to you, hey, we should all get a thousand bucks a month, Literally, people will say that's impossible, that's too good to be true. Or even the more negative part of the scarcity mindset is that it'll somehow hurt us. (laughs) Right, right. Well, it's a great – so what I was thinking about when you said that is an analogy of – which may not make any sense. But, you know, when you you ski and you ski down a hill over and over, there are sort of like these divots in the ground that your skis sort of go into – and the harder the snow is packed, the harder these divots go. And you can't kind of ski out of them at all. You just stay in the rut of this mountain. And I think you're not utilizing your brain when we get into this pattern of hardship. Yes. Yeah, you, know, you just armor up. You, just sort you of, armor up. Yeah. You armor up. And I think it, it – what would you do with $1,000 a month? Oh, I mean, I have kids like you, so we know where the money goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it goes straight to uh, savings optimally, you know, if we're, you're being forward thinking because you hope your kids are going to go to school and college is now ungodly expensive. But I think there's this this truth to that, to that idea. And I think it's the same with um, mental illness, which I also know you speak quite a bit about, that we get into these patterns of depression or anxiety. And a lot is put on us from external circumstances. If we're predisposed to having those things can impact that and make it worse. But we get into this sort of pattern of just skiing down the slope and making these, these really deep divots and we can't ski outside of them. And it's, I think really hurtful. And I think what we see in other countries, you know, countries that have, Healthcare, universal healthcare, and have a better education system. What we see, invest in their teachers, things like that. Right, exactly. Um, but what we see is almost like a freedom to let go of the stress and happiness that allows just a better quality of life. Yeah, completely. I mean, right now our stress levels and anxiety levels are at record highs, along with our inability to pay our bills, uh, and it's breaking people. It's making us turn on each other. There are a lot of uh, very fundamental emotional and, and mental and family problems that are being born of this pervasive financial insecurity that we're now uh, allowing to dominate our society. It's awful. So you speak of, uh, I love this phrase so much, and I just want you to explain it a little bit, human-centered capitalism. What does that mean to you? 
Well, right now, one of the lessons I'm trying to drive home with this campaign is that our system's doing what it's designed to do. It's just not designed to help us. (laughs) It's designed to maximize returns on capital. And a couple of generations ago, you could assume that if you are maximizing returns on capital, then good things would happen for American workers. Where if I was Ford and I had a big successful car company, I would need to hire lots of workers. I don't need to pay them enough so they could buy my car. I don't need to care about what happens in my town, you know, in in, uh, Detroit on Thanksgiving. Uh, And so some of it would be distributed around uh, my community. Today, if I have a rich and successful company, I may not need to hire that many people. If I do, I do not need to treat them well. I can turn them all into Uber drivers or temp workers or gig workers. I don't care what happens in my own backyard because I sell everywhere and nowhere. Uh, And so right now, returns on capital and our own well-being are diverging very, very sharply. And the clearest indication of this is that GDP has set record highs for the last three years, and our life expectancy has declined for three years in a row. Uh, And suicides and drug overdoses and stress levels are all at record highs, along with GDP. Uh, And a very famous economist, uh, John Keynes, uh, said that we would be so rich by now that we'd have 15-hour work weeks. And he was correct about the top-line growth. We are as rich as he'd projected, but our work weeks are getting longer, not shorter. Yeah. Uh, and so this is how capitalism is now breaking us. And the only way out, in my view, is to say, look, instead of trying to maximize returns on capital, we should be trying to maximize our own health and well-being, our own mental health and stress levels, how our kids are doing, artistic and cultural dynamism, uh, clean air and clean water. Mm. We actually have measurements for these things. And we can say, look, the goal of the economy cannot be serving the mountain of capital uh, to our own collective stress and early death. Yeah, exactly. What life is that? That's not living. Yeah, and, and that is the way American... Society is set up. It took me in uh, becoming a parent to realize just how pathological our economy and society is and how that ends up particularly punishing women, people of color, uh, people who are, are not uh, trying to like serve the mountain of capital <laughs> like, right. to, to the right. uh, nth degree. Uh, and, you know, when I became a parent, like I, I realized just how. Uh, anti-family so many of our systems are where the list of countries that don't have paid leave for new moms it's literally us lesotho swaziland and mm-hmm. papua new guinea i mean it's ridiculous and so when i saw what my wife and i were, were going through and similar to you i thought well like we have it better than like 99 percent. right of every family. time i have a panic attack i literally sit there and i go how do people do this that don't have resources Yes. That's why they self-medicate with drugs. Yes. That's why they're suicide because self-harm, all of that. Because yeah. if you don't have the resources to actually lift yourself out of something, I don't I don't think it's possible. It's very easy to succumb to self-destructive and negative impulses and a mindset of scarcity. I mean, I struggle with it myself. We all do. And I know that my wife and I are very, very fortunate. There are two of us and we're married and, you know, we have family members around and resources and our boys are very well loved. Uh, One of the stats that shocked me the most when I was uh, researching um, 
for my book was that 40% of American children are now born to single parents. And 90% of those single parents are single moms. I mean, single parent and single moms, essentially the same thing. And so if you play out what happens with those families, I mean, those single moms are super women, super mom, paint a picture where uh, little boys in particular who are raised by single moms have tougher paths forward because without a strong male role model, they just think, well, guys must be losers <laughs> because that's not around. And so I must be a loser. And then they have uh, a harder time in school, uh, more behavioral problems, more negative outcomes. Uh, and so what you and I think about as parents, and we think like, how do people deal with this? The truth is uh, a lot of lives are getting destroyed systematically and our society is just turning a blind eye and just shrugging and saying it must be someone else's fault. I know, I know it's super early to talk about the holidays, but they are quickly approaching. So you want to be able to take photos and feel confident with your smile, right? So I want to let you in on my secret. I use clear aligners from Candid. Basically, an experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. They show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. Candid's aligners help straighten your teeth faster than traditional wire braces, and it only takes six months on average. Also, the cost is 65% less than braces. Candid's aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. And they ship the aligners right to you so you don't have to go into an office. With each aligner purchase, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, who brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. I'm going to have a photo-ready smile by the holidays, and you can too. Go to candidco.com slash sorry and use code sorry to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash sorry. Code sorry for $75 off. Phew. Okay, now that summer is over, it is time to get back to my routine and eat healthy especially because I'm filming a few projects in the coming months. Yay! But finding time to look for recipes, get to the grocery store, and meal prep makes it so overwhelming. And that's what's great about Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest makes it easier than ever to get back into the habit of eating more fruits and vegetables with thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted food that can be prepared in less than five minutes. You can fill your box with more than 65 different options, like ready-to-blend smoothies, hearty soups, and savory harvest bowls, and everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to eat it. All of Daily Harvest's ingredients are sourced and selected for maximum nourishment and peak-season flavor. I've been super into their kale and lemongrass harvest bowl and the Brussels sprouts and lime pad thai. So if you want to get in on this, just go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code SORRY to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code SORRY for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. There's a bunch of controversy about 
the freedom dividend. The freedom dividend and 10 families that you were going to give $1,000 a month to, correct? Now, so I've been giving several families $1,000 a month out of my own pocket uh, for a number of months now. Um, and so that's been going great. And then my campaign announced uh, that we're going to do it for 10 more families. And I had the great joy of calling a couple of those families and saying, hey, guess what? <laughs> You're getting the freedom dividend. And then they're going to start getting checks in a, a number of weeks. And, and one of the conversations was really touching because it was a guy who said, first time he heard about me, thought it was crazy, thought it was like, you know, like, uh, um, thought it was welfare on steroids. But then he uh, had an open mind and dug into it and thought like, wait a minute, this actually makes a lot of sense. So then he signed up and then I called him and said, you're getting it. And he's a parent. He's got two uh, little boys who are, I believe, three and one, uh, you know, and so for him, like, he knows exactly where the money's going. Right. Um, so it, it's been one of the most joyous aspects of this campaign is getting to call people and letting them know that they're going to get $1,000 a month for a year. And have you been able to see the transformation, uh, you know, after a few months on how that has helped their family unit? I have, up with everybody? I, I have. So, so the people I've called just now, you know, I haven't had as much time to see the effect, but the families I've been giving money to for months, I have seen the effect and it is awesome. Uh, one of them, Kyle Christensen is at home in Iowa taking care of his mom who's recovering from cancer, like really beautiful story. And when I saw him in Iowa after he'd been getting the mon- uh, money for a couple of months, uh, he seemed like a different person. Like I almost wow. didn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he'd used some of the money to buy a guitar and he was playing shows for the first time in years. Apparently he'd been a musician but had like let it go because of you know, financial um, stresses and taking care of his mom. And so then he used some of the money uh, to buy a guitar and he said he's playing shows and then this band wants him to perform and like – their their show and creative thinking and i literally almost did not recognize him because he had such a different uh glow to him like energy because when i i first met him and his mom um you know they were under a lot of stress and pressure and like uh, you know that like and and then he just seemed like a million bucks uh and it's not just him for uh jody fassi in new hampshire uh they use some of the money on car repairs that would have been obviously like a really huge pain in the absence of an extra thousand bucks a month. Uh, Mallory Shannon broke down in tears in Florida when I, I told her she was getting the money and she's going to use it to a com- for a combination of home repairs and trying to go back to school. I believe she's 66 years old. So, I mean, for her, this is like a, um, an opportunity that she really wanted. And I got to say, Alyssa, it's like seeing how transformative a thousand bucks a month is in the hands of real American families. Uh, it's extraordinarily heartwarming, but it's also... Like, uh, why the heck aren't we just doing this for everyone? Right, exactly. It's got to seem like such a no-brainer when you're actually seeing it live and breathe. This idea that a seed that was planted that's growing into happiness and creativity and music and yeah, it's so, what a gift it's so you've human, given them. Yeah, it, it's so human and beautiful that I mean, one of the things we're saying now is it's about everything but the money. Because, like, in your hands right. it becomes uh, very, very human. Like, it becomes spending more time with people you love. It becomes... Uh, actually expressing the things inside of you that you want to bring to the world. Uh, And one of the things that gets systematically undervalued in our society is art and creativity. It's the number one thing they want to cut every time that budget comes up is the National Endowment of the Arts. Yeah, I'm going to dramatically multiply the National Endowment of the Arts. Well, it's, you know what? It's the second largest export of our country. Did you know that? Like literally it's the second largest, it's agriculture and the arts, music, movies. The stuff you make, Alyssa. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the stuff. When, when they let me. <laughs> but yes, I, how could we not 
invest in what made this this country so profoundly special. This is part of our pathology, mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm a numbers person, and the numbers show that artists have the same impact on communities that entrepreneurs do. That if you go to a community and see a bunch of artists at work, and you come back 10, 20 years later, it means property value is going to go up. That's right. That's I mean, look, and and also I will add the the political migration that happens. If you look at a city like Austin, Texas, which was pretty red around it. And then the art scene came in, and now all of Texas may be turning blue. If you look at Georgia, Georgia, where the entertainment industry came in. Oh, yeah. It's like and the, now it's the Hollywood of the South. Yes, yeah. and now it's purple. So, And you see, you see Democrats actually winning in districts. I mean, art is, is profound, in my, in my opinion. But, but you, you mentioned something else that I want to touch on, which is community and these cities. And... Um, the the other thing that I'm pretty upset that none of our candidates are talking about is the infrastructure of our country, which is eroding. We have crumbling bridges, rusted schools. railroad tracks, schools, pipes underground, some of which have are been... Are not poisoning kids. <laughs> because I mean, they're un- they've been under there for over 100 years. Yes. I mean, think about that. We are getting water from pipes underground that have been in there for a hundred years. And in some cases, uh, they didn't know about certain things when they put the pipes in. Like they didn't know that certain materials might be That's problematic. Right. And and I feel like infrastructure touches everything, right? Literally everything. It also has bipartisan support. Or it um, historically did until the right, Republicans uh, kind of lost their... Which I was reading a little <laughs> bit about that. So the reason was is because public transportation was not really part of the Republican ideology of having less dependence on the government or public things, public programs. So what we have here is literally our country is decaying. Yeah, literally decaying under our feet. It's and like you a metaphor have some for place like Flint. Let's, let's look at Flint for, for an example. Some place like Flint, which had the changing economy and infrastructure – 90% of jobs were lost when the GM plants closed. closed. Yeah. The pipes are decaying. Wait, it gets worse. The lead poisoning of youth, which can only be treated by what? Nutrition. They don't it's it's a food desert. Desert, yes. So doctors have to prescribe vegetables that are then delivered from SNAP, which by the way, the government is trying to cut. This administration is trying to cut funds from SNAP taking nutrition away. So you have these cities in the United States that were once thriving, that were the hub, that are now desolate. Yes. And how do we how do we fix our infrastructure problem? It's again going to take state, federal and private investments. Yep. Where do, we, of, where do we even start? Hundreds of billions of dollars, but I I mean trillions. Trillions. Hundreds yeah, like trillions. Trillions. GDP, 100 years old, kind of out of date. Let's modernize it and include things like uh, our children's health and success, which is tied to climate change. Clean air and clean water, obviously tied to to, uh, our environment. Our health and life expectancy, tied to climate change. Mental health and freedom from substance abuse. All the things that we care about, we actually make the new measurements of economic progress. So uh, you should actually have measurements that have hurricanes as very, very bad, have poisoning kids as extraordinarily disastrous to the point where then it actually pays for you to make sure you have clean water. 
Uh, I mean, what, what's more expensive? New pipes are poisoning our kids. Right. I, I visited Flint, and I saw, I'm sure um, you've seen it too, yeah. and uh, it's an emblem to what our society has become, where we're serving the almighty dollar, and if there is a community that seems to have no utility for the dollar, then instead they get looted. Uh, and if there are costs associated with keeping that community getting something basic like clean water or whatnot, then people regard it And it's happening it all over cost. the country. It's not just Flint, by the way. It's happening all over the country. South they Carolina, found Ohio, In downtown all over the place. Los Angeles, in schools in downtown Los Angeles. So it's happening everywhere. Now, what's happening to our infrastructure uh, is the clearest sign of American uh, disinvestment, like where – in generations past, what did we do? We built a lot of stuff. Uh, and then over the last number of years, we've just coasted on that. And it's decaying underneath our feet. It's making our children progressively less safe. Uh, and really, for all of us, um, nothing else matters if you can't trust the water you drink, uh, if you can't cross a bridge without, <laughs> without, without right. uh, concern. And, you know, I mean, I... I and that's a serious thing. I mean, they're like bridges that are um, unsafe now. So we have to invest trillions of dollars. And this is one thing that uh, I thought Donald Trump would get right. Because as a builder and real estate developer, you'd think at a minimum he'd invest in infrastructure, if only just to put his name and on it. And it polls well. And it polls well. Yeah. It's bipartisan. Republicans historically have gotten it. One of my initiatives will be to try and take some of the $750 billion or so we're spending on the military industrial complex and channel it towards infrastructure and say, look, this employs people all over the country. It's much more economically productive than some of the things we're currently spending money on. And we need to invest trillions of dollars to get trillions of dollars back. This is not just an expense. This is something that will pay off by making us more efficient and competitive for the future. I mean, you live in LA. I mean, there, there are limitations to what one can do with infrastructure, but think about all of the lost productivity just getting stuck in traffic like over and over again. And that's playing out in communities around the country in different ways. Uh, I'm happy to say that there will be, I believe, bipartisan support for this after we get rid of Donald Trump because Republicans historically have seen that this is good for everyone. We have to do it. Is there Has anyone done any research on... Or maybe it's like a sociology report on a package of businesses that would help to rebuild communities. And is there some sort of program that billionaires can invest in these small communities by opening, I don't know what it is, maybe it's a yoga studio, a dog park, a weed factory, whatever it is, but there's a formula to it where there, we know that there's, here's these, or, or movie theaters or theaters going back to what we talked about before, almost like the tipping point, but in a business sense, a tipping point, the, the book, the tipping point, which basically said that if you change the way something looks, it changes the hearts and minds of people. Um, well, I, I worked in economic development and entrepreneurship and community revitalization efforts for seven years. And I saw a lot of the practices that are going on around the country, I am convinced that the best thing we can do is to put more money into the hands of the people who live in these communities. And then the private incentives would follow like that. Like if you can imagine one of the things I say, if you want to spur black entrepreneurship, it's got to get more money into the hands of black consumers. Yes. And then there'll be a lot more yes. black entrepreneurship in those communities. If you want people to be healthier in a place like Flint, you put money in their hands, 
then businesses will follow the next day and be like, what, there's money to be made here by getting you vegetables and healthy food? Then, then I'll well, Flint is a perfect there. example of the entertainment industry should be going to Flint because all those factories are empty. So if they fixed the, the pipe problem, all studios would have to do is go in and refurbish those factories as film studios. The space is there. You bring in the artists, you bring in the community, you bring in the films, you bring in the talent, and it'll it'll shift. Yeah, I think the stat right now is that approximately 1% of American workers work in arts, uh, film, creativity, and we have to try and uh, ratchet that up to the extent we can because there are massive opportunities. The problem right now is that our... Uh, our economy isn't properly measuring the return on things like art. Uh, and to me, the most fundamental thing we can do, Alyssa, is to evolve past GDP and these capital efficiency measurements and actually just start measuring uh, our own health and well-being as measurements of economic progress. And that will end up putting a lot more resources to work in things that people enjoy. Uh, because in the 21st century economy, if we try and treat everyone like we're – uh, a unit of economic productivity, the way it's currently measured, we're going to lose on an epic scale. I mean, like yeah. like robot software, AI are going to be able to do a lot of the work that many Americans currently do uh, more cheaply and efficiently. And so if we can't compete on things like cost, then we have to de- design a different way to measure why we do what we do. Uh, and I'm not, it's funny, it's like you talk to me, I consider myself a very uh, practical, like numbers-oriented person, but this stuff becomes deeply human and almost philosophical very quickly. Um, because yeah, when and you I, realize- I also w- want to mention when I mention art and the film industry, those are union jobs. Oh yeah, and a lot of it's right? like freaking like people building sets and like exactly, <laughs> like the camera exactly. people, and like you're, all you're of this teaching stuff. people a trade and. It, they're union jobs. Yeah, no, they're, they're, it's a very diverse set of uh, workers. You can see it in Atlanta. Like you see yeah. the types of people. It's like the, you know, uh, everything from the caterers to the florists, set design, the like all of dry it, cleaners. It, you end up creating all sorts of accessible jobs, hundred um, percent. So just real quick, I'm gonna say some uh, issues. You tell me where you where you are on them. Uh, climate change. It's worse than we even uh, are. Uh, letting ourselves believe right now we have to make dramatic moves and not just say we're going to do less of the bad. We have to do more of the good. Mm. Um, We also have to try and make our people in our communities more resilient because we know when there's a natural disaster, who suffers the most? People of color, poor people who don't have cars they can get into to drive away. Uh, We need to literally start trying to uh, protect our people. Packaging waste. Can we start there? Such an easy thing to do. It's such an easy thing to do. I mean, I can't believe the amount of waste in just packaging. Yeah, you material. get something and you're like, you know, you open it once and then you're left with this. It's literally like we're hole. sending it to the moon and back and the moon and back in, you know, a rocket and we are literally just taking it to in the car from Target. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the the way to get to the bottom of packaging waste in my opinion is um is to try and and this is like a fancy term but it's a it's a very important idea is we have to internalize externalities. So what do I mean by that? It's like if I'm a company and I use all this elaborate packaging, uh, who pays the price? Eventually it's all of us because that thing ends up going to a landfill or whatnot. But the company right now doesn't have to pay any additional toll for the fact that this packaging waste exists. So what you have to do is you have to say, look, 
this is how much it costs society to have all this extra crap floating around. So if you want your fancy package, then you have to pay a little extra company X. And if you have like a really uh, cheap, efficient one that uh, you know, like that doesn't hurt the environment very much, then you pay less. There's so many, so many things we could be doing that were not like that. That makes so much sense to me. Oh yeah, our government's decades behind on this, Alyssa. It's uh, it's embarrassing what we've gotten to, and. Americans have lost faith in our government for some good reasons, legitimately. I mean, it, it's, I mean, like I'm running for president because I see that our government is the only means we have of solving some of these deepening yeah, crises yeah. and problems. Um, but at the same time, acknowledging that our government has been asleep at the switch for a long time. How about election security? It's another thing I wish people would talk more about. Being a tech guy, how much does election security scare you? It scares me a great deal because if you can't trust your democracy, then it invalidates your leadership uh, and makes everyone less motivated to vote. Uh, so there are a lot of very basic things that we need to get right. Um, I am a tech-oriented uh, person. About the same time, uh, you know, the most secure way of uh, keeping track of votes is paper uh, because it's very hard to fake paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, That's one of the... Um, the tensions between adopting more modern um, voting technologies is that the more modern technologies are in some cases at least easier to hack. Um, and then you have to go to this next generation of technologies where it would be much harder to hack or if they did hack, you'd at least know what happened. Um, but the reality is because of the patchwork of technologies we're using in elections around the country, that there's going to be a period where you probably need redundancy. And by that, what I mean is you'd have digital voting mm-hmm. and then paper backups so right. that if someone hacked it, then you could refer to the backups. Bring the receipts. There would be one of those actions where it's like you vote digitally, but then you also have some paper backup. And then if we need to confirm it, then we need to reach out to you and be like, hey, can you send it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, uh, where are you with healthcare? We need to move towards a single payer and a public option. Uh, I'm very passionate about this because I see just how perverse our healthcare system is. It's designed to make money and not make us healthy. And the incentives are wrong. Uh, We're just generating more and more activity. And the device and uh, drug companies are profitable. It's it's capitalism run amok as it is in many other parts of our life. And the costs just keep going up and up. It's just breaking the backs of more and more families and businesses. Uh, and this is not a an area where you can allow the private market just to function on its own because when you get sick or injured or your family member is sick or injured, you don't exactly start comparison shopping. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, yeah, You're not so, looking for the lowest. Yeah, just looking for the best help you can get yeah. your loved one as soon as possible. Uh, and so uh, this is an area where you need a competent government to negotiate on behalf of the American people and say, look, why are drug prices so much higher here than they are in other parts of the world? Why are these procedures? And, and this is a tough conversation, Alyssa. This is something that I'd like to try and air out at some point during this election. We're spending maybe 70 to 80% of the monies uh, in our healthcare system on people in the last two years of their life. Uh, and a lot of the time, the quality of life is very, very low. Uh, and so right now, um, we should try and have meaningful conversations about what people's end of life should look like. Uh, and I was talking to a guy named Dean Kamen, who's freaking incredible. He like invented um, the Segway and portable dialysis machines. And he was telling me that you have, um, we're spending over a hundred billion dollars on these uh, dialysis centers where the quality of life is very low. Cause you have to plug in, um, you know, you're, you have uh, 
um, renal problems and that we have the technology now to be able to send you home with a portable dialysis machine, your quality of life shoots up. Um, but right now, uh, you're not allowed to do that because people are making so much money off of the dialysis centers that they're fighting the legislation to allow people to be able to do this at home. That's even here in California. And it's because our healthcare system is making over $100 billion on the... But- in California, the, the you know, getting your appendix removed can cost anywhere between $3,800 and $275,000. It's the exact same procedure. Yeah. The, the pricing is all over the map. It depends upon who you are, what they think your ability to pay is, whether you're insured. Uh, and this is not the way it functions in other societies. Uh, again, it's capitalism run amok uh, to our collective detriment. So this is an area where the government has to step in and say, look, uh, we have to rationalize the costs and uh, in some cases make more human decisions about how people want to live. Well, Andrew Yang, thank you so much for spending time with me. It's been such a delight watching your campaign grow and progress. Well, thank you, Alyssa. You've had a lot to do with that. Uh, And I'm a huge fan uh, of everything you stand for. It, it makes me very happy to be here. And you, you this campaign, uh, we're going to shock the world. I mean, uh, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, Donald Trump loves to brag about factories reopening in the United States as if it's his doing and his doing alone. Of course, when factories close or move overseas, those are entirely the fault of the corporations which move, and he had nothing to do with it. It's this kind of myopia which led to the demise of the American manufacturing industry in the first place. Companies and policymakers turning willful blind eyes to the rise of automation and to the global and domestic economic forces that made it unattractive for major corporations to make their goods here. After all, I mean, the buck could always be passed to labor, to greedy corporations, to the Democrats, to the Republicans. And while automation may have been good for some in our nation, it has been devastating for certain individuals and communities. The job losses in places like Flint, Michigan, perpetuate and worsen systemic problems like the water crisis. By the way, this was all foreseeable, and it was mostly preventable. And by the way, it will also happen again. Mark my words. Automation will continue to hurt manufacturing workers, but it's also likely to hurt those in new industries. Programming, security, medicine, education, retail, logistics. Automation could decimate the workforces in these fields. Look, we just, we have to do a better job of understanding what is to come. We need to manage the human workscape with an eye toward the horizon, forecasting and preparing for the upheaval that global economic shifts and new technologies will inevitably bring. We need to be developing people already in jobs for these new industries, not simply educating the generation behind them. And we need to convince businesses through incentives, regulations, and economic penalties, if necessary, to remain in the communities which built them as their industries change. It takes courage, and it takes political will, and it takes creative thinking. It takes foresight and careful planning, and yes, spending. But these are people's lives we are talking about. 
Failing to do this now will cost so much more later. We need the foresight that our great achievements demand of us or the benefits they bring will come at a cost too great to bear. There's an old adage, I'm sure you've heard it, about catch a fish for a man and he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime. This is only true if we teach him a new trade before the sea is fished out. Now is the time to start teaching. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.